welcome to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon with an open phone line for you if you want to call in with any questions you have about uh, the Bible or the Christian faith. We'll talk about those here. If you have a difference of, of, of opinion from the hosts, if you see something differently that that you've heard on the program, maybe you maybe you don't even uh, agree with Christianity or the Bible, maybe you've got some objections to those things, I always welcome your calls. If you want to give me a call, we've got some open lines right now as I speak. You can get through. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737 if you'd like to be on the show today. I uh, have been announcing that uh, next week, toward the end of the week and through the weekend, I'm going to be speaking at a number of venues in Arizona, uh, five nights, five different towns in the Phoenix area. And if you live in the Arizona area uh, and you're interested, uh, next Thursday, the 8th, I'll be in Peoria. The next day, Scottsdale. The next day, Gilbert. The next day, Goodyear. And the following day, which is Monday, the 12th, Maricopa, all uh, in uh, you know, venues surrounding Phoenix. Uh, I come about once a year to uh, Arizona, and this is that time this year. If you're in the area, feel free to go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, and look under Announcements. And there you'll see the uh, information to, uh, to come to those meetings. And uh, uh, some of them are in homes. I'm not sure if all of them are. They, sometimes they're in homes. Sometimes they're in churches. Uh, but uh, you can find out where it's going to be and uh, and show up. We'd love to see you. We're going to go to the phones now and talk to Allison calling from Georgia. Allison, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, the first one is, do you think it's possible that the devil will ever come to repentance? or may ever want forgiveness? And the second one is, do you think God would ever be worried about offending people or when people are just offended in general? Well, I don't think the devil will ever repent. Um, uh, I, I suspect that he can't, but even if he could, the Bible predicts that he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. And, it, you know, Revelation 20 and verse uh, 10 says he'll be tormented forever and ever. Uh, day and night in the lake of fire with the beast of the false prophet. So, uh, no, I don't think we're going to see the devil converted. Um, as far as God um, being concerned about whether people are offended by what he, you have to realize who we're talking about when we talk about God. We're talking about the guy who created the universe. Uh, do you think our petty little offenses at him are you know, anything more than like a gnat on, a, on an elephant? You know, I mean, I, I really don't think that God... Um, adjusts himself to the sensitivities of people who are rebellious against him. You see, no one would be offended by God except someone who's rebelling against him. Because people who love God love his will. They love him. They want to please him. They're eager to do so. Uh, they're not offended by God. They realize that God's the one who has occasion to be offended by us, not, not vice versa. So the, the real issue would not be, is God offended? Uh, is, is God concerned that we're offended by him? But are we offensive to him? Now, uh, if you're wondering whether Jesus would avoid saying things that offend people, if that's what your question really is, uh, Jesus never seemed to care to avoid those things. Uh, he offended the Pharisees. And, uh, and when, when the disciples came to him 
This is in Matthew chapter 15. They said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? And he said, leave them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. Every tree or every plant that my father's not planted will be plucked up by the roots. Um, in other words, he thought, well, they're, they're not my people. They're, re they're rebels. You know, of course, they're going to be offended by me. What do I care? Now, I mean, not that he doesn't care for their souls, but he's not, you know, he's not in a crisis because they find something offensive that he that he said. Uh, of course, he's not willing that they should perish. He wants all to repent. He wants all to be saved. But God's a realist also. He knows that some people are not going to repent. And, uh, you know, he's he's not thin skinned. He's not he doesn't go into a, uh, you know, a, you know, a rejection crisis or something because people find him offensive. Um, they are the ones with the problem, and he knows that. You know, he's not the one with the problem. And so, no, I don't think that God is uh, overly concerned about whether people are offended by him, uh, except insofar as he'd prefer for them to believe. He'd prefer for them to to uh, to be on his side, not because he needs it, but because they need it. Uh, God doesn't need affirmation from us, but we certainly need his. And that's, that's what I would think... Um, when I think about, you know, saying something offensive. Now, if I say something offensive to someone, that's a different story, especially if I could say the same thing in a less offensive way. Um, obviously, as a Christian, I shouldn't turn people off either to myself or to God or to the gospel by being unnecessarily offensive. Uh, but, but Paul did say that the offense of the gospel is bound to exist when you are uncompromising. The offense of the cross, he spoke of it. And so he expects that if we are uncompromising, uh, even if we're friendly, even if we're nice about it. I mean, Paul did say we should speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4.15. So obviously, if we speak what some may find to be an offensive truth, but we say it in love, we're doing our best not to be offensive. But sometimes the truth itself is offensive to someone who's striving with all their might to not believe the truth because a lie is much more comforting to them. Than, than the truth. So I, I don't think we should, I, I think we should try not to offend people, but that doesn't mean we don't tell them truths that they would find offensive. Uh, there are inconvenient truths, as Al Gore liked to say, uh, you know, but, but not the ones he's talking about. There, there are inconvenient truths about people's relationship with God. When people are in rebellion against God, uh, there's some very unattractive truths about what their fate is. And uh, I think that, you know, if we ever are in a position that we have to say something about that, we should be as kind and loving as we can, but we shouldn't be surprised if people are offended. And we can't not say it simply because we know some people are thin-skinned and easily offended. That people need to hear things sometimes that they don't prefer to hear. Like when a doctor tells the patient that they're dying of cancer and they have three weeks to live. The prob patient probably would rather not hear that. But, uh, you know, the doctor really does the right thing by informing them of it. And especially if there's actually something they can do about it, you know. If, if the doctor said, listen, you've got cancer, but you know, there are some changes you can make in your life and we'll probably beat this thing. Well, I, I don't like to hear that I have cancer, but it's a loving thing for him to let me know. And the same thing for us if, we, if people who are in rebellion against God are, you know, they're in danger. Uh, they don't want to hear that. But it is a loving thing to tell them, especially since there is something they can do about it. They don't have to be offensive to God. They can be on his terms if they wish. Well, I appreciate your call, Allison. Thank you for joining okay. us. Yes, God bless you. you.
Okay, bye-bye now. Uh, it's either Kyvan or Kiven in California. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Is it Kyvan or Kiven? It's Kevin. Kevin. Kev, Kevin. Okay, my call screener. Shame on you, call screener. You spelled it Kevin or Kyvan. Go ahead. It's Friday. It's Friday. Nice yeah. to chat with you, Steve. I listen to your program every day. I should know by now exactly what position you take in terms of uh, the end times. Are you a, a millennialist? I am. Okay. I wanted to know that so that when I listen to your four views on your website, I can know going in which view you take. Yes. Yes. Well, if you're listening to my if you're listening to my verse by verse lectures on Revelation, I I actually am quite upfront with what my view is. If you're listening to okay. my overview of the four views of Revelation, or even reading my book on the subject, I don't mention what my view is. I just want people to have all the pros and cons for each view and let them make up their own mind. But when okay. I was teaching my, when I had a school, when I was teaching my students verse by verse through the whole Bible in Revelation, I would in fact reveal what I believe is true. But it's not important to me that other people agree with me on that. Well, I agree with you on everything else I've ever heard you say, so I want to hear what you have to say there so that I uh, I don't want to know what – I don't want you to tell me what to think. But right. I haven't disagreed with you on anything yet, and I've been listening for years. So with that said, uh, in terms of the Antichrist, there are people who go through life trying to figure out who the Antichrist – even now I've heard names named – who the Antichrist might be, um, I think of it more of as an Antichrist rather than the Antichrist. And I don't know that anybody will ever know. It's just going to be, I believe, an Antichrist. Because as John said, that already so many Antichrists have come. Well, right. there are a lot of those are dead now. And there are a lot yeah. more to come, I presume. And so we don't know anything about the antichrist except there will be an antichrist at the end yeah. is that okay well uh, let me let, let me put that in perspective if i can but you wanted to go further with that question no i had another little question I okay I wonderful. we'll take that one after this one yeah when it comes to the antichrist you always hear people throw out the antichrist and uh it's questionable whether the bible ever uses the expression the antichrist the word Antichrist is found, I believe it's four times. It's three times in the epistle, the first epistle of John, in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. Uh, you get a, a couple times in chapter 2 and, and once in chapter 4. And then in the little tiny epistle, uh, I think it's 12 verses long, of Second John, there's also a reference to, the, to Antichrist. Now, uh, it's questionable whether... Any of these refer to the Antichrist. I say it's questionable because the manuscripts differ. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, John said, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Now I'm reading the, uh, I'm reading the New King James. The King James says the same, same thing, the Antichrist. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Well, um, actually in the oldest manuscripts, the word the is not there. So, if you read any of the modern translations that typically use the oldest manuscripts, it will simply say, as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming, not, not the Antichrist. Now, he goes on to say, and you alluded to this in your question, even now, he says, many Antichrists 
have come. So you've heard that Antichrist is coming, and even now, and he's writing 2,000 years ago. He says, even now, 2,000 years ago, Antichrist, lots of Antichrists have come, many Antichrists have come. But then he says this in verse 22, who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. So whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, which is the Greek word for the Messiah, whoever denies that Jesus is the Messiah, it says that person's Antichrist. Later on in chapter 4, he talks about those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. And he says uh, of them uh, in verse, uh, 1 John 4.3, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, there's the, right? The spirit of the Antichrist. But is the Antichrist one person or is it? Uh, a spirit that that is manifesting lots of people who deny that Jesus is the Christ, which you have heard was coming and now already is in the world. Now, he said the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world in his day. Now, if the Antichrist is an individual, a human being, then he was already in the world, John said, when he wrote 2000 years ago. Uh, and if that is true, then he's not around now because there's no one alive today who was living on the earth in John's day. So I suspect that he isn't thinking of a personal Antichrist, since he's already said there are many Antichrists. So uh, now, by the way, interestingly, the word Antichrist is not found in the book of Revelation. That's where people would expect to find it. You find reference to the beast in Revelation 13. You find reference in 2 Thessalonians 2 to the man of lawlessness. And there are people who have constructed sort of a, a composite drawing of what they call the Antichrist. And they bring in the beast from Revelation 13. They bring in the man of lawlessness from Second Thessalonians 2. Uh, they bring in the little horn of Daniel uh, 7. And sometimes they even include the other little horn in Daniel 8 and the willful king of Daniel 11. They've got all these different verses, none of which use the word Antichrist at all. None of these passages have the word Antichrist. And, and they all talk about someone very bad, but in different settings. I'm not sure that they're always talking about the same bad guy. It's very tempting to take all these passages about these bad guys and say, this is, uh, you know, let's put it together all as one picture of one really bad guy. Well, that's the popular thing that is done by dispensationalists today. They, they just kind of put it together as one big bad guy. Now, do I believe that in the end of the world, there will be a world leader who is anti-Christian? I suspect that's probably true, but it'd be hard to prove it from any of these verses. None of these verses specifically teach that when you actually exegete them properly, it seems to me. But whether or not the scripture predicts it, uh, that is the trend. That is the direction the world is going. I mean, uh, the world is moving toward a one world government. Uh, the likelihood that some one person will head it up and the likelihood that it will be Christian is not very great. It's almost certainly going to be anti-Christian since that's those who are trying to put together the one world government are themselves anti-Christian. So, I mean, the idea that there could be one man in the end of the world or at the end before Jesus comes back who's anti-Christian, who persecutes Christianity. In other words, someone very much like the popular view of the Antichrist. Such a person could certainly arise. But it'd be very, very uh, difficult in my mind to find that particular person in any of these passages. So that's just that's just me. Uh, some people think they can. I, I've looked at those pretty closely, and I don't. I don't think I do see them there. All right. 
And the other thing that occurred to me the other day, you guys, we, you were talking about uh, communion. And I was raised in the Catholic Church, and I always believed in transubstantiation. I really did believe it as a young boy. And then I turned my back on God for many, many years. I was uh, baptized uh, about 20 years ago, and um, I attended non-denominational evangelical church, Calvary, as a matter of fact. But I attended many uh, Catholic services early morning as a a man, and I found that many men would take the host and then just nod gently and humbly and bypass the chalice. And it occurred to me that perhaps they're avoiding – what they see to be alcohols, and many men have reached that point in their life where they can't drink alcohol. Well, that could be. I mean, that could be the reason. I've I've never been inside uh, the Catholic Church. I've only observed it from outside, and I uh, and and I could be wrong. Any older Catholics can tell me if this is true or not. But as I recall, when I was young, it was very controversial as to whether the uh, average participant could drink from the chalice or not. I mean, the the average Catholic would take the host, the bread, but I, I think only the priest would drink from the chalice. Now, if I'm wrong, I'm just stupid about those things. I, I, I've never been inside. And I understand, or I think, I think I've heard that that has changed, that the, the ordinary person gets to drink the chalice too. I could be as wrong about that. I don't know. I don't know how Catholics uh, do this anymore. I know you can take uh, the Mass every morning if you want to, and that's apparently what you're referring to. I would think that people who take the Mass, uh, are, since they're Catholics, probably don't have any scruples about alcohol. Most Catholics and Lutherans and, and many many Christians don't. Now, some place like Calvary Chapel, I don't think they do have problems with it. Some Baptists do. Some Pentecostals do have problems with alcohol. But on the other hand, if a person is an alcoholic, it may be that they do pass on uh, you know on the wine you know at, at communion, uh, I know some some of the uh, non-denominational churches or even some of the Protestant churches I've been to, they have uh, you know these little cups, and some of them have wine. You know one of the trays has wine and one has grape juice for those who don't want to drink the wine. Um, I don't know if they've already moved to uh, gluten and gluten-free uh, bread yet, but uh, I'm sure that's coming too. I actually don't know uh, the answer to your question. Are they doing that because of that? Uh, you'd have to ask someone who actually does that, and I'm sure they'd be glad to tell you. But I'm not an insider on, on Roman Catholic uh, practices because I've, I've never actually been a Roman Catholic. It, it occurred that if, you're, if, you're, if you believe in all the Catholic doctrines and yet you don't drink the chalice because it's got wine in it, then you really you can't, it can't be blood and wine. It's one or the other. And it just, I don't mean to beat up on the Catholics. I was raised. Okay. So I, what you're saying, what you're saying is the reason they're not drinking it is because they're trying to avoid wine because of alcohol problems. Then do they really believe that wine has become blood? Because obviously drinking literal blood would not be a challenge to an alcoholic because there's no alcohol in literal blood, unless it's the blood of a very drunk man. But uh, honestly, uh, I will say this. The Catholic doctrine about transubstantiation does not teach that the wine becomes blood in the sense that you could test it in a laboratory and find, oh, this is, this is now made up of, uh, 
red and white corpuscles. It used to be grape juice, and now it's now it's it's blood. Uh, Catholics don't claim that. What they claim is there's a mystical transaction where the uh, the essence of the wine becomes the blood of Christ, but what they call the accidents of it, which is the the testable, visible features of it. They call that the accidents as opposed to the essence of it. They believe the essence of it becomes blood, but you could test it in a lab, it still be, it's all, the all, all its uh, physical features would still be wine, which is a, a good way of making, um, let's just say, an untestable claim about it. I mean, if it's, it's one thing to say there's some magic that takes place. This wine has now become, uh, you know, blood. Uh, but to say, yeah, but if you test it, you, you, you won't find it be so. But you're not supposed to. We're, we're, the claim we're making is untestable. Uh, to my mind, you only do that when you've got a weak position. But uh, anyway, I, I can see what you mean. If they, if they thought it was really blood, then they wouldn't be concerned about alcohol in it. On the other hand, the Catholics, would they'd get around that by saying, well, it, it really still is alcoholic wine, even after you drink it, even after the priest consecrates it. It's just that something supernatural has taken place uh, in, in the unperceived uh, realm that it's now received as the blood of Jesus. To me, there's no reason to believe the doctrine, at least not a biblical reason. And so, but I'm guessing that must be, you know, what you're thinking, too. You know, why would they why would they avoid it? if they believe it's the blood now instead of the wine. Actually, I'd be more interested in avoiding it if I thought it was human blood than if I thought it was wine, uh, because human blood, uh, drinking human blood would be kind of repulsive, and it was also forbidden in Scripture. All right, let's talk to Noah from Massachusetts. Noah, welcome. Hi, how are you doing today? Good, thanks. Hey, did I hear you were doing an online debate with my friend Max, the atheist, at some point? Yes, yeah, well, yes, we haven't set up the date yet. He has found an online venue. We haven't settled okay. on the we haven't settled on the subject yet. He wants to talk about things, something like the young Earth creation or uh, or the global flood. I'd much rather talk about something more central, like is there a God or is Jesus risen from the dead or something like that, or are the Gospels reliable? I'd love to debate about that. We haven't really <clears throat> nailed that down yet, but yes, we have both agreed that we're going to. And I did tell him to find a venue. He did online. I, I was hoping for a face-to-face, -face, but he—I uh, guess it'll be online. We will certainly be announcing it when it's when it's coming up. We'll we'll announce it every day in advance for a while. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I had kind of a young Earth creation question. I I, okay. I heard some flat earthers on your show the other day, and you seem convinced of the science that the Earth is round and everything. But why are you so against the science of how old the Earth is? in terms of, like, geology and stuff like that, that it's actually millions of years old? I'm, I'm not against any science. <clears throat> I don't think there's good scientific evidence for a flat Earth, but I think there is evidence that's ambiguous about the age of the Earth. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a, quite a few things that old Earth creationists or old Earth evolutionists bring up to prove the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. I look, you know, the, the young Earth guy can look at those evidences and say, Yep, those are actually not a problem for us. Uh, we have an, another world view. We actually believe in miracles and, and a God. And therefore, the, yeah. things that, the things that are troublesome to you are, are not, uh, not troublesome to us. Uh, so, uh, but there are, there are things that young earth creationists bring up that, are, that to my mind, uh, are uniquely difficult for those who would take a naturalistic view. So, but also, 
I don't care if the Earth is young or old. I've never cared whether it's young or old. I do lean toward the young Earth creation. I'm not ashamed to say so. I think that the evidence uh, against it is not per, not totally persuasive. But but even if it was, if I became an old Earth creationist, it would not be a crisis to me. I, I've never had a you know a dog in that fight. It, it, I have no stake in it. If God made things four billion years ago or you know ten thousand years ago, what do I care? I wasn't around then. Uh, my my well, obligations I, with God have to do with today. Yeah. Can I bring up your argument against the Gnostic Gospels, though? Because you had I okay. heard a couple of weeks ago you don't believe the Gnostic Gospels because the first sentence is a lie. It's it's written by it's not written by who it was written by. Yeah. And yet, if if the Earth is old, then the first statement of the Bible would be a lie, saying that right. God created the Earth in seven days. No, actually, actually, the and, Bible, the first, no, no, wait, the, the first, the, the first sentence in the Bible, excuse me, the first sentence of the Bible doesn't say God made the earth in seven days. The first sentence says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that's, that's not a lie, no matter how long ago it was. Uh, now, there are, first in, following yeah. that, what's that? First sentence is then, I meant like the opening story. Okay, well, the Christians, really, yeah. yeah, Christians, when they look at Genesis 1, some of them take it literally. And some of them see it as a creation poem, and they they believe that it's it's not affirming literally that the earth was created in six days. Now I've got no problem with it being created in six days, but anyway, go ahead. You, you, you're, see, you're saying that first story of the six day creation is a lie, and therefore the Bible's false. Wait, you have to prove that well, it's a lie I, I, first. That's, you're you're begging the question there. Well, you're assuming I, you're assuming from the beginning that it's a lie. Listen, we need to take a break. I'm going to bring you back if you hold on the line. I'll bring you back at the beginning of the next segment because we have to take a break at this point. And so I've got you a hold. Don't go away. We'll talk to you again at the other side. Uh, at this point, we'd like to let our listeners know The Narrow Path is a listener-supported ministry. And uh, if you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can. You can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or you can go to the website, thenarrowpath.com. Now, there's hundreds of free things that you can download from the website. Nothing is for sale. So check it out. You can donate there if you want to, though, but you don't have to. It's thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds. Don't go away. We highly recommend that you listen to Steve Gregg's 14 lecture series entitled, When Shall These Things Be? This series addresses topics like the Great Tribulation, Armageddon, the rise of the Antichrist, and the 70th week of Daniel. When Shall These Things Be? can be downloaded in MP3 format without charge from our website, thenarrowpath.com. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you'd like to be on the program, the number to call is 844-484-5737. Before the break, we were talking to Noah from Massachusetts. Uh, hi, Noah. You're still with me, right? Yep. Good. Thank you. You know, the, what you said was, uh, I rejected the Gnostic Gospels because the first sentence in them is a lie. Namely, 
they claimed to be written by people who were dead at the time they were written. They claimed to be written by Peter or Philip or Mary or Judas, and they were written in the the second or third centuries after these guys were dead. Now, you said that Genesis is that way. The first first, uh, story in Genesis is a lie, and therefore, why do you believe the Bible? What I'm saying is, uh, you haven't proven that it's a lie, I, I, and that's begging the question. That, that's that's what has to be established before we can say, well, we can't believe the Bible because the first chapter is a lie. Well, we have to know for sure that this first chapter is a lie first. Now, well, I don't I believe the first chapter is a lie. That, that yeah, I, I, I do you believe that the Earth is millions of old because I mean, all I have to do is look at the Grand Canyon and see how a river has cut its way through rock for millions of years. Actually, I think you ought to. I think you ought to do more research on the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is one of the strongest evidences for young Earth. There is. Okay. Uh, yeah. There's. Uh, just. Just look it up on some creationist site. They'll, they'll. They'll point out why the Grand Canyon is not the way it would be if it took millions of years. The, the strata and so forth. And so, I mean, people can tell you, oh, look, you know, that took millions of years. But the question is, really, how do I know that that took millions of years? Uh, and is there evidence that it couldn't have? And that's what they're saying. They're, um, now, again, I don't care if it was or not. I don't care if it took millions of years. But I'm saying that so creationists that, actually use the Grand Canyon as, a, as one of their proofs of the young Earth. Or, or I'll have to look into flood. that. Yeah. yeah. And then so, um, I guess that settles that question. I just kind of wanted to raise that point. It's one of the reasons that I, I as I... I was raised in the church, but I no longer follow the church. I still have lots of Christian friends, and I talk about these type of things with them. Good. So, Good. Um, yeah, keep the conversation going. I had a, yeah, I had another question about something you you mentioned earlier. It's something that I've always been curious about, if you got a second. Um, you mentioned that globalism is anti-Christian inherently. Um, verse, and I've always wondered, why why do Christians tend more towards a nationalistic view than a globalist view. Because I would feel with no Jews, no Gentiles, blah, 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 you would Christians would favor a, a more global view. Yes, we actually, we actually do look forward to a global world government under Jesus Christ. When he returns, he'll be, there will be a global good government, and it won't be anti-Christian. The reason that I say... Um, Globalism is anti-Christian because all the people who are promoting it are anti-Christian people. They want to take away people's freedom. They want to take people's rights. They want to. They have a uh, a utopian dream, which is, uh, to my mind, going to require uh, injustice to to enforce against the will of the peoples. That's you know that's not a Christian thing. They and and they do see Christianity as one of the big obstacles that they need to get out of the way. So I mean, you just have to find out who these people are who are talking about the one world government, you'll find that they reject Christianity, and some of them see Christianity as a serious problem. Um, so, uh, but, but the idea of the whole globe being under one king, Jesus, is a very Christian idea. Uh, it's just not going to work out as long as the people who are in charge are anti-Christians. Uh, so, but we do believe Jesus is going to come back. We do believe there will be a, a global Government. Now, I will talk about, you said, why nationalism? I don't know if I'm big on nationalism, but I'm not against it. Uh, after the flood, which I know you don't believe in, there was a Tower of Babel, which I'm sure you don't believe in either. But the Bible teaches that the Tower of Babel was created or was begun to be constructed because the rulers 
wanted to keep people from scattering around the world. Why? Well, because it's hard to rule, for rulers to control everybody if they're all scattered around, you know. And so, but God didn't want them to be all controlled by one, uh, you know, pagan ruler. The guy who started that was a guy named Nimrod, who was a bad guy. And uh, so the confusion of the languages and the distribution of people to various nations was to prevent the possibility of one bad guy controlling everybody. In fact, Paul talks about that in, uh, I think it's in Acts chapter 14, when he's talking about uh, how God made of, of one blood all nations. And uh, it says, and he determined the habitation of their nations and their boundaries. He says, so that they might feel after God and perhaps find him. In other words, God wanted people to be independent from some kind of globalist control so that they could personally have freedom of conscience to seek and maybe find God. You see, all, there's nobody who has ever proposed a one-world government, other than the Christian idea of Jesus coming back and having one, uh, who likes the idea of there being a loyalty to Christ that is stronger than the loyalty to the world leader. The world leader wants everyone to be loyal to him. After all, if people aren't loyal to him, it spoils the whole thing, right? So, but Christians are loyal to God. They're loyal to Jesus, and they're more loyal to God and Jesus than they are to any leader. And therefore, the world leader, when he arises, it doesn't matter if he's a great guy, but he's, he's going to be threatened by people who say, yeah, you may be a great guy, but, but we're going to follow Jesus, you know, above you. And that's, there's never yet been a world leader who wanted any of their subjects to follow someone, some other person more than them. So that's the that's the issue. That's that's why globalism is itself inherently um, anti-Christian. Not because the idea of the whole globe being governed by by people who have no ethnic or or national distinctions is a problem. That's that's exactly the society that Jesus creates when people come to him. They you know their their race, their their uh, economic status, their nationality becomes irrelevant because we're all one in Christ. But the world isn't all one in Christ, not now, because not all the world is yet in Christ. When it is, then a one-world government will be absolutely perfect. Hey, thanks for your call. I need to take some more right now, but great to hear from you. I'm sure we'll hear from you again. Let's talk to um, Rashad from Brooklyn, New York. Officer Rashad, or maybe, is it Sergeant? What is, what's your status, Rashad? Yeah, um, officer. Rank? Officer, okay. Good to hear from you again. Yeah, officer. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, you know, I um, I was going to ask a question about uh, the whole Catholic um, thing with uh, communion and everything, but I think you already explained it. My my question was going to be, you know, because I was on the impression that they thought that it literally turned into into um, flesh and blood. So my question was was going to be, you know, why not use the argument that uh, you know, which I think that I'm pretty sure Scripture says we're not supposed to drink human blood or eat human flesh. Yeah, yeah, and and frankly, yes, when Jesus, when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, and he said, "Drink this cup. This is my blood." If they believed that was literally his blood, and not just a figure of speech, if they didn't think he was saying, "This is a symbol of my blood," which is what he did mean, but um, if they actually believed it was blood, Peter would have said, "Not so, Lord. I'm a Jew. I don't drink blood, any blood, much less human blood." Remember, it was years later when Peter was on the housetop and Jesus gave him a vision of these unclean animals and said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, No, Lord, I've never, I, I, I'm kosher. I've never, I've never eaten any unclean thing. Well, 
That's exactly how Peter would have reacted if he thought Jesus was asking him to drink literal human blood. I mean, that's, uh, it's clear that the apostles did not understand him to be being literal, and they had no reason to. They were taking a Passover meal where they were accustomed to the elements at the table being symbolic. Uh, at the Passover, they would say, this bread is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in Egypt. Well, really, it must be mighty moldy by now. This is 1,400 years later. No, it's not the bread of affliction that their fathers ate, not literally, but they would eat it as a remembrance of the affliction that their fathers did. Now, Jesus changed it up, said, okay, from now on when you eat this bread, remember me, not, not Egypt, not, not the Exodus. This is my flesh that's, you know, broke through this, this wine is my blood. It's, it means it represents it. This is a, a ritualistic meal, and it rituals, uh, the things you eat represent things. They don't become magically something else. At least there's no reason to believe that it did. I mean, God could make it happen, but there's no evidence in the Bible that God does make that happen or that he'd be interested in doing so. All right. All right. I, I had another question if you have the time. Go ahead. Um, how do you how do you argue against um, someone that that thinks that we literally have to do everything that um, that Jesus did, as in like as a, like as a Christian, you're supposed to because Jesus celebrated Passover, you're supposed to celebrate Passover and things like that. Well, well, we are to walk as Jesus walked, it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, but we're not supposed to do everything he did. For example, not everyone has to grow a beard, not everyone has to wear sandals, not everyone has to walk around unmarried and homeless like Jesus did. Uh, I mean, that's not a universal requirement. Now, when they say, well, Jesus kept the Passover, he kept the, the Jewish festivals, he kept uh, Sabbath, well... He may or may not have. There's indications that Jesus you know, actually didn't always keep those things. He got criticized a great deal for not doing so sometimes. Uh, but if he did them, it has a lot to do with the fact that he was Jewish and that he was born under the Jewish law. Now, in the upper room at the end of his life, when he, said, he passed the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. You know. Well, he's instituting a new covenant. Now, the law of Moses was part of the old covenant. It says in Hebrews 8.13, where there's a new covenant, the old covenant is obsolete. So Jesus lived largely under the old covenant, and so did his disciples, which includes keeping the law. But at the end of his life, he inaugurated the new covenant. The new covenant doesn't involve keeping the law of Moses. It's a different covenant. It has different requirements. So, uh, you know, if they want to be under the old covenant, they can do that, except it's obsolete, the Bible says. They can go to Judaism if they want to, because that's what it is. If you keep covenant, if you keep the old covenant, for example, if you keep Sabbath and, and the, the Jewish feast, uh, that's Judaism. That's not Christianity. Um, and and a person's welcome to be a Jew, but they won't be a Christian. Then they won't be saved. Um, you're only saved when you're in Christ. The law cannot save anyone. That's what Paul is very emphatic about. If if there was any law given by which a man could be made righteous, then Jesus died for nothing. Paul said in Galatians two. Cool, cool. All right. Thank you, Steve. Um, have a blessed weekend. Great talking to you, Rashad. God bless. Okay, let's see here. Let's talk to John from Indiana. John, welcome. Yes, thank you very much, Steve. Sure. Uh, I have one question. Uh, what relationship was Delilah to Samson and was all his uh, feats uh, 
actually true and did God give him his grace in his final day? Okay. Uh, first of all, we don't know that Delilah had any relation to him except that she was probably a harlot. Uh, we do not read that he married her. Uh, he visited her from time to time and spent the night with her. And um, we do know that uh, earlier in his life there's another woman uh, that he he was with. And uh, I think most Bible scholars would just say Delilah was probably just a, a hooker. Uh, and that he, you know, he, Samson was not a good man. I mean, he he broke every vow he had. He had a, he had a Nazarite vow, which means you can't touch a dead body, but he killed people with a jawbone of an ox. Uh, you're not allowed to drink wine if you're a Nazarite. Well, he probably did. He partied. Uh, you're not allowed to um, cut your hair. Well, for the most part, he didn't until the end there when he wanted to please Delilah. He went ahead and he knew she was going to cut it. He, three times she said, you know, what's the secret of your strength? He said, well, if you do this to me, I'll lose my strength. And when he slept, she would do that thing to him, but found out that he didn't lose his strength. So by the time he finally said, well, here's the truth. You've got to cut my hair. He knew she was going to do it. She'd done all the other things, he'd said. So it's like he was, she was saying, oh, you don't love me if you don't tell me the truth. So he was more interested in keeping her uh, affection than on keeping his vow to God. So he he had many compromises in his life, uh, moral and ceremonial and so forth. But um, did he really do those feats that are recorded? I think he did. I, I believe the stories, true stories of the feats that he did. And then uh, did he die under grace? I believe he died under grace. It does seem like at the end, when his eyes were put out, uh, he was very humbled. Uh, you know, he did pray at the end. Uh, you know, he was looking to God at the end. We don't know. I mean, it's a very briefly told story. We don't know how deep his his faith was at that point, but I think he was repentant. He sounds like he was humbled and repentant. And it says in the book of Hebrews that Samson is among those, in Hebrews 11, it says among those who died in faith. So I, I believe that regardless of his weaknesses and his sins, he did, uh, he did turn to God in the end. And uh, so I do believe he died, as it were, as you said, under grace. That'd be my opinion. All right, let's talk to uh, Douglas in Sherwood, Oregon. Douglas, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Good afternoon, Steve. Thank you. Uh, mm -hmm. I just wanted to make a quick comment to our friend who called in a little bit earlier about young earth creationism. Uh -huh. um, there is a relatively new book called The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, and this is a 48-chapter volume, volume, 48 articles by over 30 authors. And most of them are believers, but even the even the ones who are not strictly speaking Christian, they typically believe in some, you know, some version of God. Uh, and that's and I think this is a, not only an excellent volume, but it's also an excellent representation of what Christianity actually is. There are many young Earth creationists. There are many old Earth creationists. <laughs> there are yes. there are Christians who who are agnostic about the subject. And, uh, and and we are a diverse group, and what Jesus taught us was to love one another, tolerate one another in love. And so we're able to disagree and yet continue to have faithful fellowship with one another. Absolutely. So it's called what, the Comprehensive Guide? Is that what it is? Yes, sir. The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. Uh, and it's, it's narrated by uh, William Dimsky and Casey Luskin, and there are actually 30 contributors uh, to this great 
great work, and it really does show the diversity of the Christian faith. You say it's narrated. Is this a, a audio, or is this? Or you mean it's edited by them? I meant I meant to say edited. I misspoke. I did say I'm narrated really because I'm listening to the audio version. I I don't gotcha. have the patience to sit still and read. I listen to audio all the time. <laughs> okay. I think I've heard of that book recently. It's, it's fairly new, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, I've, I, someone mentioned it to me before. It sounds good. I'll probably get it. Uh, awesome. Thank you. Have a blessed okay. day. Thank you, Douglas. You too. All right. Barbara from Roseville, Michigan. Hi, Barbara. Um, hi, Steve. I have a question. Now, this is regarding um, God being married to the um, backslider, talking about Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14. Um, he talks earlier in some um, verses about um, giving her a bill of divorcement or something, but then he drops down in verse 14 and makes it clear that he's married to her. When, did God ever officially divorce Israel after um, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse number 14? You know, it's, it's really hard to make out exactly what that relationship is supposed to be, because, of course, at Mount Sinai, the covenant God made with Israel was seen as a marriage covenant. And so at, thereafter, Israel is spoken of as God's wife and God as her husband. But, yeah, he does mention in chapter 3 of Jeremiah that God gave her a bill of divorcement. But then he also says if she comes back, he'll take her back. And he, he makes reference there to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through uh, 4 or 1 through 3, where it says that if a man divorces his wife and gives her a bill of divorcement, and she goes and becomes another man's wife, if her second husband divorces her, then she cannot go back to her first husband. And, and actually, Jeremiah 3 begins by stating, uh, you know, restating that law from Deuteronomy, and, uh, and then saying, yeah, but even though I've given you a bill of divorcement, I'll take you back if you return. So he's saying... Even, in the, even though the law wouldn't allow this to happen for a wife who's been divorced to come back to her husband if she's been with another man since, he says, yeah, well, I'll waive that. I'll waive that requirement, and I'll take you back. Uh, in other words, he's still seeing her as his wife, in a sense, even though he's, you know, he's given her a bill of divorcement. Now, I, I, think, I think what we're supposed to see is that there are – there's two tracks to Israel's identity and destiny. There's the nation as a national entity made up of, uh, you know, ethnic Jews, Israel. And then there's what's, what, the, what Jeremiah and others refer to as the remnant, the faithful remnant of Israel. And I think what he's saying is in sending the nation into Babylon, that's like giving the nation uh, a bill of divorce. But the remnant who are still faithful to him, yeah, he's still kind of married to them. Uh, and, and he says the nation can be restored, too, if they'll come back to him. But it's like he divorced the nation. But there's always that element within the nation who are faithful Israelites, who, who he never would disown. And therefore, he's still in covenant with them. Now, as it turned out, after the Babylonian exile, most of the Jews who went into exile remained uh, unbelievers, or, or at least they didn't come back. They when they were given the opportunity to come back and re restore the nation, only 50,000 out of probably a few million uh, came back. And they were the remnant. And, and God did you know, continue his relationship with the remnant. But the nation as itself, uh, the, the, you know, it came to an end. It was, in fact, rebuilt by the remnant. Uh, 
so in a sense, he had divorced the nation, the national entity Israel, but he was not divorced in his mind from from the remnant that were, you know, that were faithful to him and therefore still his bride. That's what I understand it to mean. Okay, Kevin from Sacramento, California. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Um, I was facilitating a Bible study recently where the activity of Satan was being referenced, and uh, one of the members kind of made a statement that she she said Satan is unable to oppress or interact with people through visions and dreams, which is kind of that was kind of her stance. And um, I was facilitating. She kind of asked me if I agreed with that, and I kind of punted and said, you know, that's that's an area of demonology I haven't really explored and uh, would kind of research it and get back with her. And just, just wonder about your, your perspective or any insight you might have on that. Well, I'd like to know, what did she base that on? I mean, well, did you she say... had... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, well, did she just say, well, I just don't feel like Satan should be able to do that? Or did she have some kind of scripture or something that, that she's... Because I don't believe she's correct, but, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to know why she thought that. Right. Well, in the larger picture, we were we were studying or studying Job, and we were in the opening chapters where Satan and you know God and the Satan um, mm-hmm. are are interacting, and um, and so yeah, she came in with a with a printout. It was from a, from a person I'm I'm not familiar with, um, but yeah, that was her that was kind of her her perspective, and it did it, it kind of came out of left field because we were talking about something else. Yeah. Um, and I think she had read ahead to Job chapter four, where Eliphaz is talking about um, a vision that he had of some kind yeah, of saw supernatural spirit, yeah. being or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, right. and and so she said, well, that couldn't have been Satan because Satan cannot interact with people in dreams and visions. And she had some some printout or some paper. And initially, I said, I don't think that's right. But right. I, I really I don't haven't think explored that. Yeah, much. I don't think that's right. I don't see any reason to believe that's right at all. Um, okay. Because uh, I'll tell you, uh, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 13, um, it talks about false prophets. And it says in verse mm-hmm. 1, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives mm. you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the wow. Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Now, he talks about obviously what we'd call a false prophet who's had false visions or false dreams and gives a false prophecy. And he says, if, if that prophecy is steering you away from Yahweh, from, from God, well, then don't follow them. Uh, now, he doesn't say that it's a demonic thing. But it does seem mm-hmm. like it's describing a supernatural thing, which is not really true. You know, it's, it's a it's a right. false supernatural thing because they give you a sign or a wonder and it comes to pass. That strongly suggests mm-hmm. there's something supernatural involved. And since it's trying to lead you away from God, it's not from God. And he says, don't follow that. So it seems to me that that's implying that, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that dream that that person had is, is not from God. It's, it is supernatural because it predicted something that came to pass. Sounds like it's demonic. Now, it doesn't say anything about the demons in that particular passage, Mm -hmm. but it does say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test Mm -hmm. the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, in the book of Numbers, God told Miriam and Aaron when they criticized Moses and challenged his authority, God said, listen, if I I 
Um, if I raise up a prophet among you, I will speak to him in dreams, visions, or dark speeches. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, dark speeches. He says, my servant Moses is not so. With him I will speak face to face and, not, and apparently and so forth. Now, he said mm-hmm. that prophets, prophets notably, uh, have dreams and visions. And, and here, right. in chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, God said, uh, you know, there might be a prophet or a dreamer of dreams who has, gives you a vision that leads you astray. That's not from God. Don't follow that. Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me, and especially as John tells us, that false, uh, you know, there's false spirits. Don't believe every spirit. Some are not of God. There's false prophets, he said, gone out in the world. Sounds to me like the warning is there are such things mm-hmm. as supernatural dreams and visions and prophets prophecies that are not from God. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, he goes on to say in verse 4, that's the spirit of Antichrist, you know? So it's, right. an, evil, it's an evil spirit, to be sure. So I think mm-hmm. she was just kind of, I don't know, she was just quoting somebody who, who must have yeah. <laughs> made something up, because I don't think, I don't think that the Bible supports that idea. And I, I will say this. I mean, this is just anecdotal and rather than scriptural, but I've already told you some scriptural basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known a lot of people who've had dreams that I think were demonic. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, I know I've known some Christians and, and non-Christians who are tormented at night with night terrors and, and dreams that are horrible nightmares that, uh, you know, that, that, that are not doesn't seem like it's from God. And and certainly when they have, uh, then when you have, in some cases, people wake up from their dreams, they've got, they feel like there's a body on top of them and hands around their throat. I've heard that story many times from many people. Every time they, they say that when they call out on Jesus, it goes away. But I think that's demonic. So I think, I think the, yeah. the lady was uh, not very well informed, in my opinion. Hey, Steve, thanks for all you do. Appreciate it. Okay, Kevin, God bless you. Well, we're out of time for today's broadcast and for the week. You've been listening to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. We're on Monday through Friday at this same time. Been doing it for 27 years daily. Uh, we are listener-supported. If you'd like to help us uh, pay the radio bills to stay on the air, you can write to the Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, um, Temecula, California, 92593. Uh, or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. Next Wednesday, we have our monthly Zoom meeting. You can find that at our website, thenarrowpath.com, under announcements. Let's talk again Monday. Have a good weekend.